BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. faces were coloured black and white, and they were armed with large bows and arrows, lances and shields and swords, shaped like our two-handed swords, and many slings and stones and fire-hardened javelins, and they all wore quilted cotton armour. As they approached us, their squadrons were so numerous that they covered the whole plain, and they rushed on us like mad dogs completely surrounding us. Bernal Díaz de Castillo, the true account of the conquest of New Spain. De Castillo is one of the most comprehensive sources we have for the conquest of Mexico. I have already given an outline of de Castillo's background, and last episode I introduced the work of Miguel León Portilla and how he pulled together information from another set of sources, the Aztec Codices. We should have a closer look, though, and have a look at the other sources we have for the conquest. The only documents that we have, which were written both by someone who was present and at the time of the conquest, are a series of five letters written to the King of Spain by none other than Cortes himself. Of course, these are fascinating and help us form a broad outline of the order of events, They give us an insight into his personality and what he was thinking at the time. It should be pretty obvious, however, that we cannot take them at face value. While pretty much everyone who wrote about the conquest had an agenda which influenced their telling of events, Cortes was the man with the biggest motive to add his own slant to the story. He was writing directly to the king, and so, with all of these conquistador expeditions he had to make the trip look as positive as possible, and his actions both reasonable and effective. 
Cortes had the added pressure of justifying his decision to take off after Velázquez de Cuella had vetoed his expedition. This could be interpreted as treason or insubordination, so he knew that he had to make the trip look pretty successful. We can also gain a little more insight about the later stages of the conquest, thanks to two surviving letters written by Pedro de Alvarado. These were written from Guatemala and were addressed to Cortes. After Tenochtitlan was taken, de Alvarado was sent south to conquer more territory. Because of this, these letters relate to those events, and furthermore, as they are to Cortes, who was obviously present during the conquest of Mexico, de Alvarado had no need to recount these events to him. Of course, de Alvarado wrote his letters under the same pressures as Cortes. Cortes needed to give a positive account of himself to the king, while de Alvarado had to give a positive account of his actions in Guatemala to Cortes. The next source we have is the work of Bartolomeo de las Casas. He was not present during the conquest, but he would later spend time in Mexico, being appointed the Bishop of Chiapas. He would have a good idea what was going on, and he was in the Spanish Americas, but he did not see or participate in the events directly. Of course, de las Casas had an axe to grind. He was the loudest Spanish voice arguing against the Spanish conquests and speaking up for the indigenous people. This does provide us with a welcome counter-narrative to the positive Spanish accounts, but we have to take this bias into account. Most Spanish sources paint things in a positive light and either omit the atrocities and setbacks or play them down. De Las Casas does the opposite. Everything he writes is designed to emphasise that the poor indigenous people were suffering at the hands of his cruel countrymen. While it is invaluable that somebody kept a record of the negative events that took place, we do have to keep in mind that he is not just recording them. He is using them to make an argument, and thus will do what he can to make his argument more powerful. Even if we agree with his argument, we have to recognise this, and try to separate out the facts from the rhetoric. In 1552, a man named Francisco López de Gomara wrote a biography of Hernán Cortés, which of course included an account of the conquest of Mexico. This document adds more detail to the story, but it is just as riddled with bias as those preceding it. De Gomera was a long-time friend of Cortés, and his work was designed to paint Cortés in the most positive light. He was not present at the conquest, in fact he never left Europe, and he relied on interviews with Cortés and others to write his book. It's considered so biased and riddled with inaccuracies that it was banned by royal decree within a year. Anyone found to possess a copy was fined. Needless to say, if that was the reaction at the time, then modern historians, with their highly developed scepticism of source material, do not give much weight to this account. The final contemporary account, and I use that word to mean something produced within the lifetime of the events, was that of de Castillo. 
1576, he published his true history of the conquest of New Spain. This is another useful source. It was written by someone who witnessed things firsthand. However, it does have drawbacks. Obviously, as he was a participant, he wants to make the conquest look positive, and he was writing partially in response to De Las Casas' negative account. It was also written decades after the fact. You can be sure that events as significant and dramatic as the conquest would probably stick pretty vividly in the minds of those who witnessed them. If you ask someone what they had for dinner on a specific day 40 years ago, they're not going to remember. But if you ask them to recount a battle they took part in 40 years ago, I reckon they would probably be able to give some pretty accurate details. That said though, memory is a funny thing, and some of the detail must have left him by that point. On the Aztec side, we have the codices. These are indescribably useful to have. Few conquered people of the colonial era were able to leave behind their accounts of events. As I mentioned last episode, we also have to thank Miguel Leon Portilla for collating these into one accessible book. There are many surviving codices, and some were written by the Maya and Mixtec as well. More are thought to have been written, but they were destroyed by the Spanish. The codices vary from pictographic accounts to written texts, sometimes in Latin, sometimes in Spanish, and sometimes in Nahuatl. Some even predate the Spanish arrival. We have to be aware of a couple of things when using these as sources, as invaluable as they are. Firstly, they were written by the conquered people, and thus are subject to as much, but opposite, bias as the Spanish texts. We also don't really know the conditions under which they were written. We know that they were often written under the supervision of Spanish priests. Some of these were sympathetic, and a couple in particular were fascinating people, learning the language, advocating for the preservation of Aztec culture, and writing what are basically anthropological accounts of the population. This is great, but what biases were these men bringing, either pro- or anti-Aztec to things? And what were they allowed to publish? While the codices do present the Aztec view of things, were there any pressures exerted by the colonial government preventing them from saying exactly what they wanted? This is further complicated by the fact that copies and summaries were sometimes made of the original documents, some of which were lost, and this adds a further layer of interpretation and possible bias. Finally, the Aztec were of course not the only people conquered by any means. It would be great if every people had been able to write codices and have the voice they did. I would love to know what all the lesser-known peoples had to say as well. This episode won't rely on the Aztec sources, as today we follow Cortez's journey up the coast of Mexico to the spot where he finally decided to stop and launch his forays inland. Before he got there, though, he still had a few adventures to undergo. At the end of last episode, Cortez had been forced to delay his onward journey while he repaired one of his ships. With that done, he continued up the coastline to Isla Mujeres, just off today's Cancun. 
It did not stop there long, however, only to obtain fresh water before continuing onwards around the northern tip of the Yucatan Peninsula. Before long, he had passed Champoton, the place where de Cordoba had been repelled by the local Maya on his expedition. Cortes decided against trying to stop there, although he did apparently consider it in order to avenge the honour of Spain. He did stop at the mouth of the Tabasco River, but he would receive just as hostile a welcome as de Cordoba had. The estuary of the river was shallow, too shallow to take the ships in, so they were forced to anchor at sea. He decided to take around 200 men ashore on smaller boats, but as he started to make his way through the mangrove swamps, he soon noticed the warriors watching him from both banks. Then he saw the canoes coming towards him. Here, the Aguila came in handy as Cortes was able to use him to send a message outlining his peaceful intentions. He told them that he just wanted to trade, and that he meant no harm. These Maya responded by telling him that if he advanced any further, they would attack. Undeterred, Cortes tried again, more or less repeating his first message. In turn, his counterpart repeated that he was to come no further, but agreed to take his message to the local cacique. They would not get an answer on the cacique's intentions until the next morning, so Cortes and his men spent the night on the beach, constantly keeping watch in case they were attacked. He was not, however, going to just sit there. They had seen the Mayan settlement further up the river, so Cortes sent half his men to hide close to it, so that they could surprise the Maya if it turned into a battle. For their part, the Maya were also making preparations, putting up wooden barricades on the edge of the settlement. Both parties were right to prepare for the worst. In the morning, the cacique's answer was given. He did not want to trade, and Cortes was to leave immediately. Despite being outnumbered, and foreshadowing his later actions against the Aztec, Cortes's stubborn-slash-brave-slash-stupid streak came through. Instead of leaving, he did the opposite. He got back in his boats and continued to sail upriver towards the town. Now, Cortes was a leader of men. He had already shown that. But, although there is a crossover, that is a different thing to being someone who can command troops in battle. A commander needs those same leadership qualities but they also need an understanding of battle tactics. Cortes had never led a battle before, and although hiding some of his men had been a clever move, his tactics now were pretty basic. Charge in and attack. To be honest, I'm not sure that this was solely down to lack of experience. That seems to be Cortes's strategy for life. Choose an overly ambitious aim and then just charge towards it with blind confidence that you will somehow be able to pull everything off. Somehow, he was always able to pull it off, and this occasion was no different. By sailing upriver, he had left his men exposed. The Maya were able to attack from the banks, and he was unable to fire back effectively due to being confined to the small boats. 
Once they got near to the town, they were forced to jump out and wade through the river to reach their opponents. They had to swing their swords in waist-deep water in order to fight their way onto solid ground. While their heavy armour was one of their great advantages against the indigenous people of the Americas, it must have made fighting in a river all the more difficult. The shoreline itself was swampy, and once they eventually made it, they had to battle through thick mud as well as the enemy. Cortez himself lost a boot, and this had to be retrieved. The Spaniards, however, managed to overcome all this, and when they reached firmer ground, their strengths came into play. Their enemy's tactics were simply to run into battle, whereas, once the Spaniards had won themselves some space, they were able to form coordinated units and work together with discipline. Their guns could now be used effectively, and they managed to advance to the barricades on the edge of town. At this point, the men he had sent out the night before emerged from their hiding place, and they took the Maya by surprise. The ambush was a success, and the Maya soon fled, abandoning their settlement. Cortes immediately announced that this town was his first conquest on the mainland, and that it now belonged to the King of Spain. In the central square was a tree, which Cortes slashed several times with his sword. It's unclear if he realised this. Perhaps Diaguila knew of its significance and had told him, but this would have been a highly significant act to the Maya. In their cosmological understanding of the world, this tree was sacred. It was thought to be a pillar holding up the sky. This piece of theatre was significant for another reason. Cortes had mentioned the king, but he had not mentioned the name of Velázquez. Although it was obvious that he had already broken with his former patron, this was a symbolic confirmation of the fact, and it proved that he had no intention of reconciling. He believed that he was reporting directly to the king. Apparently, a minority of his men were not best pleased with this. Once the dust had settled, the Spaniards were able to assess the results of the battle. Among the wounded was De Castillo, who had been hit with an arrow in his leg. The injury was not too serious, however. They also discovered that Melchior, their captured translator, had taken advantage of the chaos to run away and join the Maya. That's probably fair enough, really. He had been kidnapped, and although these were not his people, they were of the same cultural group, and they would probably help him get home. After allowing his men to rest, Cortes sent two groups out to find food one under the command of de Alvarado, and one led by a man named Francisco de Lugo. They had hardly left town before they were attacked. De Lugo found himself outnumbered and surprised, but luckily de Alvarado was still close enough to hear what was going on. They were facing a small force, and when de Alvarado arrived, together they were able to fend them off. They captured three prisoners and brought them back to camp. From these prisoners, they discovered that the local caciques had decided to band together to fight off these strange interlopers. They had assembled a force of at least 20,000 men, which was, at that moment, on its way there. This number dwarfed what the Spaniards could field, 
and so Cortes tried to hedge his bets. He released the prisoners with gifts. This was the best he could do to try and avoid a conflict. Knowing that this would be unlikely to change the intentions of the approaching army, he prepared his men for battle. He chose the maize fields, which the town inhabitants had cleared, as the place where he would do battle. On this open terrain, the Spaniards would be able to use their organisation and discipline, something which would be more difficult in the town or the jungle. He also prepared his cavalry, all 16 horses of them, and as this was something that was unknown in Mexico, it would prove to be extremely useful, despite the small numbers. Last time, Cortez's tactical ability had showed itself, despite his inexperience, but so had his impetuousness. This time was no different. He prepared for this battle perfectly, showing an understanding of his forces' strengths and how to exploit them. On the other hand, was preparing to fight the right decision to make at all? He was outnumbered ten to one. Would it not have been a better idea to retreat and find somewhere else to start his empire? How many people listening to this can honestly say that they would be so brazen and choose to take on these odds? I don't think that I would, but that's one of the many reasons I probably wouldn't make a good conquistador. The next morning, the Spaniards took up their positions, and the Maya coalition started streaming out of the forest towards them. They came in waves, screaming and howling and covered in strange and intimidating body paint, each wave broke, however, on the infantry units Cortes had assembled. Meanwhile, his horsemen charged in and out, breaking up the enemy charges. They had never seen a horse before, let alone fought against these types of tactics. With surprising ease, Cortes won the battle and the enemy fled. Apparently, only two Spaniards died in the battle, although around one-fifth of his force was wounded and many of his men suffered illness that night because they had been drinking dirty stream water. The next day the Maya came with offerings, and asked for a truce to bury their dead. A meeting was arranged with their leader, and Cortes, realising the Mayan ignorance of horse and gunpowder had been decisive, decided to intimidate them as much as possible. He brought out his biggest and most difficult horse, and let it misbehave next to the cacique. Then, as they were talking, he arranged for one of his cannons to be fired, and these two tactics had the desired effect. The cacique was terrified. He asked for peace and brought gifts, including some statues made of gold. This, of course, piqued the Spanish interest. They were yet to see significant amounts of gold, and this is what they were really looking for. The Maya pointed to the northwest and told them that the gold came from up there, from a people called the Mexica. This tallied with what de Grijalva had been told on his expedition. The Spanish received one more important gift from the Maya, a slave woman named La Malinche. Alternatively called Marina by the Spaniards and Malintzin by the indigenous people, La Malinche will play an important part in the conquest. For this reason, she is a controversial figure in Mexico. 
Some see her as a traitor to her people for helping the Spanish. Others see her as an example of a woman using her intelligence to achieve a pretty good outcome for herself in difficult circumstances. A relatively rare example of female empowerment in this time. Some have argued that she was able to limit the excesses of Cortes and make the conquest as humane as possible given her situation. In this understanding she was not a traitor but a realist who could not change the course of events but who saw an opportunity to modify them a bit. La Malinche was the daughter of a cacique in central Mexico. She was ethnically Nahua, not an Aztec but from one of the related groups. She spoke a dialect of the same language as them and had similar beliefs and customs. Her comfortable childhood came to an end when her father appears to have died and her mother remarried. Her new father-in-law was not happy to inherit her and she ended up being sold to slavers. They in turn sold her to the Maya cacique the Spaniards were talking to now. While De Aguila spoke Maya, he did not speak Nahua. La Malinche did. This would make her an invaluable addition to the expedition's translation team. She did not yet speak Spanish, but she did speak the Maya dialect of this region. She would later talk to the Nahua people, including the Aztec, and then translate that into Maya. De Aguila's Maya dialect was close enough for him to understand her and then tell Cortes what was being said in Spanish. It was a convoluted system, but it seems to have worked. La Malinche would also prove to be a skilled diplomat, going beyond just relaying Cortes's words, instead actually winning over the people she was tasked with talking to. Cortes took a personal liking to her, and for the rest of the conquest of Mexico, she was always in close proximity to him. Once the gift-giving was over, Cortes decided that he had gained everything that he could from the Maya, and opted to continue northwards along the coastline. His expedition set sail again, with the intention of seeking out the Mexica he had been told about, and the gold that they were said to possess. Next episode the two powers will meet for the first time. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website, www.maxsargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelled M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt 
www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.